Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ptolemy Slocum. Basically, if you don't know, like when you're giving birth, it's kind of like anywhere from four to 24 hours of someone shitting. <laughs> that and more. But before that, hey, I just want to say we are almost, almost to the day that the Risk book is released, folks. It is being released on July 17th. And I'll tell you, we were told that like at the bare minimum, we should have like at least 2000 pre-orders in order to like make a splash, maybe end up on the New York Times bestseller list by the time the book comes out. Um, We've got about 600 at this point. So we're doing good, but we could be doing a lot better. I think you know the story with Risk. It's Every episode is phenomenal, and yet it's got a cult following. You know what I mean? It's the kind of show that not enough people know about. So I am hoping that the book brings a lot of attention to the podcast. I'm hoping that a lot of people buy the book for friends, and if your family's cool, family too, and that it kind of opens their eyes to, oh my God, I should learn how to download this show. The book is just chock full of some of our most jaw-dropping, some of our most beautiful, like tear-jerking, some of our most hilarious. I mean, there's stories in this book by Michael Ian Black, T.S. Madison, Jonah Ray, Aisha Tyler, Lily Taylor, Paul F. Tompkins, A.J. Jacobs, Dan Savage. There's stories in this book that you've never heard on the podcast before. There's behind-the-scenes interviews with the storytellers. There's an introduction by me. You know, it's one of those deals where the chapters are somewhat short, so it's incredibly easy to, like, addictively just go from one to the next. It's extremely readable. Now, there's two very easy ways to pre-order it right away. You can just text to the number 900-900, the word risk. Just get on your phone, go to 900-900, text to that number, the word risk, or 
just go to theriskbook.com. That'll also get you right there in the pre-ordering process. Finally, I I want to reach out and ask you guys for this final push in the last, you know, month or so that we have here before the book comes out. If you have any ideas, like what could we do that would convince you to pre-order even more copies? Like what kind of contest could we do or what kind of thing could I offer that I will do on Instagram or Facebook live? Uh, what kind of like personalized audio do you think you might love to get if you pre-ordered the book? Like send us some ideas at Kevin at risk show.com for what you think we could do to really get more and more and more people pre-ordering this book in the next five or six weeks, because this book will be the biggest thing that's happened to this podcast in, I don't know, forever. And we really, really, really hope it's a success because, you know, we have have instantly about 50 more stories in mind for the second Risk book. So pre-order by going to theriskbook.com or by texting to 900-900 the word risk and send your ideas for other things we can be doing that you would think would be like, yeah, if you do that, I'll pre-order a couple more copies or convince my friends to. That's at Kevin at risk-show.com. All right, now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is nightmares on wax behind me now and we're calling this week's episode guts these are three stories that uh we've been meaning to run forever and ever and ever and uh this week i was just like well these three have something kind of in common um belly stuff (laughs) i just got back from our shows in tampa and orlando our first time doing the show ever anywhere in florida and both cities were just phenomenal. Such great audiences, except for maybe two drunk people in Orlando who I absolutely wanted to strangle. But (laughs) I don't know. Maybe we'll be able to edit them out of the, you know, the things. I'm always astounded that I will make an announcement like six times during the show not to talk back to the storyteller. You know, the people who get drunk, basically, and then just cannot, the filter is not there. They have to be saying, what? Dude, no way. Fuck her. Are you kidding? It's like, yeah, yeah. The inside voice, folks. Inside your head. Voice. (laughs) 
So I don't know. You know, all that effort to workshop with people and then fly down there and then put on a show and then we might not be able to use those recordings because the story is being told by a person on stage and two people in the audience. There's a lovely lady on Twitter, Dame Wilburn, who suggested, hey, I know you can't afford to fly and then get hotel rooms for more than one person for any of these shows, so maybe you should put a call out when you're coming to town that one fan might be your assistant help you out for the night so that some, you know, if you say, hey, can you look for in the audience where those people are and alert the venue and have them get them out of here, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that kind of thing. Because uh, it's very hard for me to host a show and be running around doing stuff like that at the same time. I don't know. Maybe we'll start doing that. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear uh, one of our belly aching stories <laughs> from the wonderful Mara Wilson, who has, I don't know how many times Mara's been on the show uh, so far, but she's always fabulous. She is the author of the fabulously titled book, Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame. And I'll tell you about a new project Mara's up to uh, after her story. But before that, we're going to hear from Ptolemy Slocum, who you can see every week nowadays on uh, Westworld. Ptolemy is a super, super, well, you can see him on all kinds of spectacular shows. He was on The Wire, The Sopranos, lots of, lots of amazing credits. And you can find him on Twitter, at Ptolemy. That's, you know, like the Greek god or something? P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. All right, here he is now at a Risk Live show in Los Angeles 9,000 years ago. It's Ptolemy Slocum with a story we call Smoothie King. I don't have notes. How are we, everybody? Okay. Um, yeah, hysteria. Uh, I looked it up. Hysteria comes from hysterica. It's Greek. It's the uterus. Everybody know this? Hysteria is like wandering uterus. I guess it's like because uh, I get to define like women, like the wandering range of emotion that people can go through, but they basically use it on women. It was a uterus thing, and it reminded me of a great story about the birth of my second daughter, Emiana. It was a home birth, and if anyone here has gone through a home birth, you're probably eligible to speak up here right after me. But our first birth was in a hospital, um, which was uh, okay. Afterwards, my, my wife got into the uh, birth world. She became a doula and a birth educator, and so naturally our second birth was gonna be at home, uh, which is great, great for me. I'm very excited. Uh, there's going to be action in our house. The, uh, the hospital birth is okay. I felt left out of it a lot, except for the very end where the pushing part happens. Like, I think the part you see on TV of people giving birth is the very end. There's an entire, like, glacier underneath the water of, like, slow up into that moment. But once the, once the action is happening, you feel like you're a part of it. I remember just shoving ice, like a shovel, ice shoveling into her mouth and making eye contact and saying, I love you, I love you, and that really, like, helped things. I'm like, I'm a part of this. I'm a, I'm a half of this. 
But prior to that, I was basically uh, taking up space. Um, so I was excited about the home birth. And uh, both being a doula, we knew a lot about birth at that point. I was exposed to a lot, but also she knew a lot of people. So we had uh, kind of a wonder team of birth professionals with us. There was a doula that was her best friend. The uh, lord of all doulas who trained doulas also came to our house. Two doulas. Huh? Uh, the greatest midwife in all of Los Angeles and a former lord of all doulas that used to train doulas was training as a midwife also at our house, full turban, the whole thing. Um, so we had a lot of people there. Uh, there was a lot of pressure, so I was very uh, excited. Um, then I bought a, uh, a birth tub, which is a good idea, <laughs> off of Craigslist, which is questionable. Um, but I bleached it. So, no problems. Um, but they did say they didn't use it. I didn't believe them, of course, so I bleached it. There was a way to bleach it, so I bleached it. You know, just make sure there's no humanity on it. Um, but it's a circular tub, it blows up. I was very excited because the uh, hospital didn't have a birth tub. We would have a birth tub at home, so much nicer. Right, guys? Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, birth tub is uh, all planned out. It's going in the what will be the baby's room upstairs. And so I like rehearse, military rehearse with this birth tub. There's a hose that goes out the window downstairs into a sink. And then I get an adapter so that I can hook it up into the sink. So the process is turn on the hot water, wait till it's warm, then turn off the hot water, then hook it up, then run back upstairs, test it, make sure it's warm because you want it about 100 degrees like by the time like she's getting it because you want to do the exact birth birth like the same temperature as you so it's like an extension of you anyways um so it's a, it's a whole process um and i got uh, blinds for everything because uh, basically if you don't know like when you're giving birth it's kind of like anywhere from four to 24 hours of someone shitting <laughs> like because it's a sphincter effect right because like the cervix is a sphincter and if you like walk into someone shitting they're like Ugh! and it like sucks up right um but you gotta like maintain a quiet area for like four to 24 hours as the cervix like slowly, any kind of jolting, it makes the process harder. So my job is really just to protect the space, right? Keep it cool, keep it safe, keep it calm. And that's what I'm gonna do. So yeah, get blinds for everywhere. Day of birth comes, very exciting. Um, also, I don't know if you've had a home birth, which uh, uh, nobody made a sound when I said home birth, so I'm assuming. <laughs> that I'm just like talking up here alone, but uh, you silent person out there that has had a home birth, I see you. Um, when that shit comes to your house, there is unfortunately like a panic mode. It's like, it's happening. Uh, so you have, you know, the entire dream team come to the house and, and things are happening. It's like, what do you need? Where are you gonna be? Uh, then the whole upstairs is like quiet and still and, and I don't let anybody up upstairs. There really is no one else in the house. Um, but I, no, I'm like, I'm protecting downstairs. They're upstairs moving around and I'm like, uh, all right, what can I do? What, can, I, can I get any ice? Not ice yet, ice is later. You guys all know this by now. Um, <laughs> And one of the doulas comes up to me finally after like hours and hours and hours. And I'm like, uh, is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can get you guys like sodas? You know, I'm, I'm amazing. I'm like the entire hospital staff. Um, and uh, um, uh, doula number two uh, comes downstairs. And I don't know if you've uh, interacted with doulas much, but they're very, very calm. So they're like, Ptolemy, we may be approaching the time where the birth tub might be appropriate. And I, and I say... Fuck! Um, and so I, I'm like, fuck! I've, I've been downstairs. So I run upstairs, 
and I shove it in the, the there's a handle on the side of the tub, and I shove the hose in, and I run downstairs like, fuck, I should have been, why didn't I, why isn't I thinking about the tub? And so I turn on the hot water, hot water's like, come on, fuck, fuck, come on, come, come on, come on, come on, hot water's on, <sighs> plug in the hose, slam on the hot water, run back upstairs, and I turn the corner into this child's room, and I'd never turned on the water that hard before, and the hose had popped out of the handle, and I come in, and there's just this swirling hose, like straight up, like a fucking character, just spraying hot water entirely around the room, like some like snake from hell. And I look in there, and I'm like, fuck! So I'm like running in slow motion. You know, this is like, this is my action moment. And I'm running in slow motion. Don't think about the hardwood floors and that there's water already everywhere. And my first step in the room like just angles off to the side. And I'm looking at the hose like going down. Slam my face on the ground, just covered in water. I'm like, no! And I look up and there's this like god of hot death. And unfortunately, if you're in the comedy world at all, no matter how bad things get, you know when it's still kind of you're in a slapstick film, you know what I mean? And I was like, God damn it, this is funny also. Because I'm like, God, because this is, I never, this is like the worst pratfall I've ever gone through. My face already swelling, already scalded. Um, and I try to get up, and it's just like that black fucking hardwood. I'm, why am I mad at the floor? But, uh, and I can't even get up in time. I'm like, Gah! So I'm like, kind of like platooning it toward the, and I grab the snake by like the neck, and it's still like everywhere burns. And I get it back into the tub, and I'm standing over like totally covered in like hot water. And uh, so, run back downstairs. Turn it, uh, you basically have to like feel the temperature, turn it back, temperature, fills it up. It's exactly 100 degrees. Go back downstairs, turn it off. Go into the bathroom. They're in the bathroom, coldest place. By the way, there's like four rooms that I, each one had its own like theme with candles and shit upstairs. They're in the bathroom. Um, because I guess it's like coldest. It makes sense. Things make more sense once you're actually going through birth, and I realize that now. They, you don't want like a, like a romantic, you're not looking for fucking romance when you're giving birth. Anyways. <laughs> It was foolish. Uh, so they're in, the, they're in the bathroom, and I, lo- I knock on the door, and I'm like, out of breath. They, they open the door, and I'm like, oh my God, what happened? I'm like, no, no, don't look at me. Don't see me. Just stay relaxed. And my face is like somewhat puffed. My wife's like, oh God, what happened? And I forgot, I was like entirely like, either I had like drooled, I don't know what happened, but I was like, just totally disheveled. I was like, um, they make their way to the birth tub, uh, which I'm super excited about. This is my like piece de resistance. They make their way to the birth tub, and uh, they're like getting in the birth tub. She's like, she's naked and beautiful. Like when there is a woman giving birth, she's like a goddess. Gets in the birth tub, slow down, and as soon as she's like sitting down, it's like, nope, no, nope, no, nope, this is not it. And that is what happens when you're giving birth. You know exactly what you need and you don't need, and what she didn't need was a birth tub. And at that, the entire birth tub experience was like 10 seconds long. <laughs> instantly out of the birth tub, back into the bathroom where things were going well. Um, nobody needs a soda. It's fantastic. I go back, to, back in the room and they're singing this song. It's like, um, it is a brave thing I do making a way for you. 
I am strong. And they're singing that fucking song, and I want to be part of that song. You know what I mean? Like, I can sing to the baby. All right. Um, anyways, finally, uh, hours later, it went really well. Everything, everything was going well. They, they, they start pushing, moving to the uh, bed. I've made the bed twice. Two sheets, a whole set of sheets that will be removed for reasons. And then a whole second set of sheets so you can just unremove it and then get in it. I'm, I'm amazing. Um, so the pushing starts. I have brought in imported crushed ice instead of the cube that we get downstairs. Imported crushed ice. I have my little spoon shovel. And I'm like, ice, ice. She's like, no ice, no ice. And then I'm like, down there. It's like, I love you. I make eye contact. No eye contact. Fantastic. So, uh, all correct, all correct. Uh, so I'm back in the corner of the room. I'm a videographer now. Uh, I videotape it. Baby comes out. It's beautiful. Lots of women. It feels like, you know, the God's in the room. It's incredible. I cut the umbilical cord. I did cut the umbilical cord. So, fuck all of you. Um, uh, so I'm, now the baby's there, everything's working, everything's great, now we're giving birth to a placenta. There's two births. When you give birth, you give birth to a baby and then you give birth to a placenta. So the baby's uh, like, um, uh, attaching, things are going well, the placenta's not uh, coming out, but the baby's here and the placenta's not coming out correctly. So I take the baby and we go into the room across the hall and uh, my wife has what's called boggy, it's a term, it's called boggy placenta down here. And um, the blood clots start to form in this area. And it uh, doesn't allow for the placenta to close down because basically you're bleeding in this entire section. And um, the midwife then has to reach in with her hand and scoop out blood clots while the person is still alive. <laughs> and I'm in the other room. My, my uh, younger, uh, older daughter uh, just came home from school. We're both upstairs holding this baby. And the sounds in the other room is like, uh, like POW camp style screaming. And you know when someone is in real pain, it's different than yelling. Y you feel it. Uh, and there's no mystery. There's, a, there's something very dangerous going on in a room. And I'm holding this baby. And babies are so small. They're so small. And it's just so light. And it doesn't feel like anything. And, um, and this other daughter's here. And I look at both of them. And I and they're fucking hot tub is right there, but um, I feel the first time in my life that I thought that I could be a single father, and it never occurred to me, but just now there's two people and one really useless person, and these um, yells are happening, and it was like, it, was, it, was, it changed me slightly, and the door opened, and the other midwife, the one with the turban, says, uh, Ptolemy, we need you. And I said, yes. And I dropped that baby on the ground. <laughs> Which is not true. I handed the baby off. But uh, this midwife, this midwife turns and says, I need you to make a placenta smoothie. And I looked down, and in this tray, she was a food tray, by the way. I got it on at Surface uh, in Culver City. It's a medical food tray. It's for the placenta. In this food tray is just red death. It's like a placenta, right? It's a big ball. It's like if, if you have a puppy and you love this puppy and then one day someone turns the puppy inside out and puts it on a food tray and says, here's your puppy. And you're like, I, I still love the puppy. Um, but you don't, under, you, don't, you don't recognize the puppy, but it's like, oh yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's it, that's it. Um, so 
I'm like, I will make a fucking uh, placenta smoothie. So I grab the tray and I run downstairs and I set it down. I have a Vitamix. I don't know if you know the Great British Picking Show, but there's, a, there's like a technical challenge in there where it's like you have to make something out of instructions. I didn't even get fucking instructions. I just got a placenta and a Vitamix. And I was like, I'm going to make something. And I start cutting this thing. And it is a spectacular organ. It is, it's like cutting into a basketball. It's so firm. And it looks very translucent and light and like watery. And it like, it's almost intoxicatingly beautiful. It, once you're like looking at it, it has a jellyfish effect. But once you cut it, it's like, God damn, you're tough. So I'm like I'm working on it. On it these scissors, cut a chunk of it, throw it in the Vitamix. It was uh, kale, uh, yogurt, <laughs> strawberries, uh, the aforementioned placenta. Um, and there was like another fruit, oh, bananas, um, and ice, because I wanted to be like, you know, like have that, uh, you, you know what I mean. Um, and so I make it and uh, pour it in a cup and I'm like running, I'm like, I don't know what this, I don't know if it's any good, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what do you, what am I serving her? And when am I gonna drink placenta again? So I did try it. Um, and it's exactly what you would think it tastes like because no one has ever imagined tasting a placenta. Um, it just has this like metallic feel. It's amazing. So anyways, running upstairs, head it to her. Um, she drinks it, face changes like a relaxation, it like works instantly. Not that that was the thing, um, but because everything had cleared up by then. Um, and by the way, an issue that the hospital never found was this thing. And we actually had issues for months afterwards. So this midwife was amazing. Uh, so I look up, I did something, look around. All of these amazing birth people were like, ah, huh? And they were all busy doing other things, so it didn't matter. But go back in the room. Pick back up this child, another child, wife makes it, we all make it, we're very happy. I'm sweating now as I was then. But I learned something, this takeaway, this idea of dealing with the world outside of me and my own relationship to it, ultimately with this whole thing, of like how your emotions like are just like pulling you everywhere and you, you want to like control the world around you. And especially with kids, you like want to... You want to like, you want them to be okay. And there's this like intensity of like, oh God, how can I, I gotta have to do something. And I learned from this whole thing that it's not about me. It's not my fucking thing. Like I just need to be there. And as long as I'm there, there's going to be something for me to do. Like I'm needed. It's just not me shoving myself in anything. And the last thing I thought I would ever be doing that day is making a placenta shake, obviously. <laughs> but that's what I was there for. And that's how I approach my life now. And because of all that, I can go through my life currently as a slightly less hysterical person. Thanks, guys. So I got the organic soy beverage with vanilla taste for the omega-3 and calcium in there. My strawberries, a banana, some red grapes. Most important thing is the piece of placenta. <laughs> Smells good. Smells like placenta with strawberry. Mm -hmm. yeah. I say eat more placenta. As long as I don't have to eat it, it's all good. Stop it. <laughs> So I was the kind of kid who never laughed at poop jokes. Uh, I was a very, very neurotic kid. I'm a very, very neurotic adult. 
I have carried around three bottles of hand sanitizer with me at all times since I was 10. Uh, that's just the way that I am. And I think that once a waste product is out of your body, it shouldn't be talked about. It shouldn't be thought about. It should be in the toilet and flushed away where it belongs. Uh, Kevin and I do not have this thought in common, but you know, <laughs> takes all kinds. I, it's, a, it's sort of a manifestation of, of something that I fear. It spreads disease. I'm a germaphobe. I'm afraid of germs. I'm afraid of, you know, gross, sticky things. You know, I don't know where they're coming from or what they are. I don't want anything to do with it. But I've had to kind of get over it. And I got over that partly at first by working with kids. Uh, I love kids, I'm great with kids, uh, but kids are disgusting. <laughs> Let's just be real, kids are, kids are incredibly disgusting. Uh, a few years ago, I was working as an instructor at a day camp. I was teaching kids drama. I taught them how to use their vocal resonators, uh, putting that BFA to good work. Uh, and so, uh, there was this one little girl there who was just the cutest thing you'd ever seen. She looks like the girl in that gif that's going, why not both? Um, <laughs> except even cuter, even cuter. She had these huge big eyes and these like cute little bangs and she would go around all the time talking about poop. She would put poop into everything. I mean, figuratively speaking. She was always talking about poop. We would sing our camp songs and she would find a way to work poop in there. And she just loved to talk about it. And one time I said, Vivian, why do you always sing about poop? And why do you always talk about poop? And she goes, because I love poo-poo. I like to eat poo-poo. I really, really hope she was joking, but like it got to the point where I was half expecting her parents to show up on Parents' Day and people to be like, Mara, come meet Vivian's parents, the aristocrats. Uh, so uh, the other reason, the other way that I've had to face this was because of something that happened last summer. I suddenly found myself unable to move my bowels. I mean, you know, I was worried because I actually kind of missed it, you know? Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? <laughs> or until it won't go? It was scary because this wasn't something, this is something that's supposed to be out of your body and I couldn't make it go out of my body and it, it really, really scared me. Just the thought of it being still inside me really worried me and so I went to the doctor and they said, I don't know, drink some water, take a mild laxative and eat more fiber. I went to another doctor. They said, I don't know, you know, take mild laxative, drink some water and eat more fiber. I ate a shit ton of fiber and nothing happened. I followed their advice, nothing happened. Eventually I got scared and I went to the emergency room. Now my friend Julia came with me and Julia loves to accompany people on emergency room visits, partly because she's very, very maternal but also because she's really into weird shit. So she loves weird stories. And so we get there and we're sitting in the room together and the doctor walks in and the doctor is this like very like professional looking, very serious woman. She is like the millennial daughter and a Nancy Myers dramedy. Like the one that's really, really focused on her career and her like, you know, former groupie baby boomer mother is just like, you take everything too seriously, honey. That is who this doctor was. Uh, so she walks in and she's like, all right, so what happened when the other people gave you rectal exam? I said, uh, nobody's done that. And she goes, nobody's given you a rectal exam? And I say, no, sorry. Like, it's my fault. And she goes, all right, well, we're going to have to do one. And she goes to reach for the gloves. And I look over at Julia and I say, 
you know, you might want to leave. And she goes, oh, yeah, totally. I'm leaving right now. I'll be out in the hall. But I got to tell you, Mara, this is by far the most interesting emergency room visit I've ever done. And actually, as she says that, the doctor says, why? Why is it interesting? Uh, So she does her exam, which is, you know, uncomfortable, but it's it's over. And then she says, takes off the gloves and says, uh, all right. Now, I don't want to alarm you, but when you say that you already have, you know, it's too late. And neurotic me, my heart starts pounding. And she says, all right, you're going to need to get a colonoscopy. The problem isn't in your rectum. It's somewhere further up. But you're young and you're healthy, so it's probably not cancer. I immediately just go numb. I'm completely numb. I can't remember really finding my way out of the hospital or paying my bill or anything. I'm sure I did it because otherwise I'd be having bill collectors on my ass now. But um, I get outside out of the hospital and suddenly I'm furious. And I'm so fucking furious about the food truck that smells really bad. And I'm really furious about the construction work. And I'm really furious about the taxi who's almost knocking me over. And the other guy who's almost knocking me over. And of course he's a fucking New Jersey license plate. They always draw and knock me over almost. And I'm so mad. And why isn't there a Second Avenue subway yet? Actually, why is there even a Second Avenue subway proposed when we can't get a fucking line from Brooklyn to Queens to the Bronx? Why can't we get that done? That is some racist classes, Robert Moses shit right there. And I hate that. And I hate the Upper East Side. And I hate Manhattan. And I hate this city. And, and what is wrong with everybody? And what is wrong with me? Really, what is wrong with me? I don't know what's wrong with me. And I'm scared. So I'm angry. Because that's what I do when I get scared. I get angry. And Julia knows that I get angry when I'm scared. So she's just kind of letting me go and letting me go off on my, you know, sort of angry reverie. And, uh, there's really nothing that I can do but make the appointment and wait. So I do, I make the appointment and it's about a week and then I go off to a tiny office in East Elmhurst uh, to get a colonoscopy. The prep for it is not fun, but uh, I do kind of enjoy the fact that like one of my first major medical experiences is one that people usually like 30 years older than me have because I am such an old lady at heart, you guys. I have hard candies in my purse. I have been known to bake chocolate chip cookies and bring them to my friends' improv shows. Like, that's just who I am. So it's, it's fitting. And the prep isn't actually that bad, especially the day when I'm required to eat no fiber, so I just go crazy at Shake Shack. Uh, but I get there, and they put me to sleep, and one of the last things I hear before I get put to sleep is, you look familiar. Were you in a movie? <laughs> So I wake up, and I have all these smiling faces around me going, Good morning! Everything's fine. We only found one tiny polyp, and we're going to do a biopsy on it. But even if it's cancerous, it's gone, so you don't have to worry. But we'll call within three days if it's cancer. So I'm actually not that worried because it's gone. It's out of me. And mostly I just feel really good because I'm really doped up. Uh, my boyfriend at the time, actually, I made him promise to uh, write down some of the funnier things that I said uh, when I was out of it. They include, don't let me tweet. Uh, All of my legs are heavy. Um, Which will actually be even funnier in a few months. Uh, Y'all are, you're all on the inside. And um, this one, which is, there's only one good artificial sweetener. 
love. <laughs> Just kidding, it's xylitol. <laughs> Uh, I also talked a lot about Proust. I became very pretentious and very huh, full of shit uh, after this colonoscopy, apparently. Uh, but yeah, but I, I get home and the anesthesia wears off, but I mostly feel okay. And I'm actually kind of proud of myself because, you know, yes, I got nervous, I got scared, but I didn't like hurt myself or do anything too bad. And they never do call, so it isn't cancer. And really, I handled this pretty well. I mean, I handled my first cancer scare pretty well. And the only problem is that now I don't know what was causing the constipation. So I have to do research on my own. It turns out that it can be a side effect of a lot of different medications, including a bunch of ones that I'm on. So I go to the doctor and I get that all sorted out. But before I do, I learn something. Constipation can also be caused by too much fiber. Which makes me wonder, were the doctors that told me to eat more fiber just as full of shit as I was? <laughs> Thank you, guys. This is Risk. This is Christine and the Queens behind me now. And we just heard from Mara Wilson. Now, Mara has a subscription newsletter that she just started with Substack. It's at mara.substack. Plenty more stories and jokes and essays there. Speaking of extra content, there's bonus stories from Risk to be found at patreon.com. There's a new bonus story about once a week. There's also my weekly check-in. Well, I'm trying to do them. <laughs> I'm trying to do them on a weekly basis. But there's also all kinds of videos and audio. And oh my gosh, there's our first two seasons that have been remastered with the ads taken out and all our all-star episodes. There's so much content that you can get at patreon.com slash risk and help keep the show running by becoming a member there. It means the world to us that our fans contribute in that way and help keep this all going. 
You know, another way you can contribute to risk is by pitching us your stories. Especially pay attention to where we're coming next. Boston, San Francisco, Chicago, Minneapolis, Detroit, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver. We're always looking for stories in New York City and Los Angeles. Pitch us at any time by going to risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a great audio there. It's a 50-minute lecture prepared by me called What Every Risk Storyteller Should Know. It's like a you know, a little workshop there to teach you what it is that we look for in stories. There's plenty more information on the submissions page at risk-show.com about how to pitch us your stories and encourage your friends who you think have amazing stories to pitch us their stories as well. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Megan McGee, who told this one at our, the last time we were in Milwaukee, that was in 2016. And Megan works with a fabulous storytelling series and storytelling school in Milwaukee called X Fabula. So look them up at xfabula.org. Here she is now. This is Megan McGee with a story we call Trying Again. So it was April 2015, and although I was entering uncharted territory, everything was going according to plan. Stretchy pants, check. Morning off of work, check. My partner, John Bedelove, by my side, check. I was on a table in a dimly lit room, waiting for an eight-week ultrasound to confirm the crazy, amazing, life-changing news. John and I were going to be parents. We'd only been officially trying for a few months, but because I'm a grade A nerd, it was all very mapped out. So I had my Lily app where I'm tracking my, you know, my ovulation. I'm taking my temperature every morning. You know, I let John know I'm ovulating and he comes in like, yes, we have to fuck to save the planet. Like we're doing this. We are, we are on it. I'm, I was 36, you know, advanced maternal age as they like to scare you. But that wasn't gonna bother me because we were following the plan. And there you go, a couple months later, I lure John to the bathroom. I'm like giggling maniacally, so excited. And I show him the news. You know, pregnancy tests, the only time the good news looks like a piece of urine-soaked cardboard. <laughs> so getting pregnant 101, A+. Plus. So having aced that class, I'm back onto first trimester studies. And you know, I'm doing everything again according to plan. Assignment one, don't let anyone know. Now, for whatever reason, we kind of say first three months, you gotta keep it secret because something could go wrong. You could be jinxing it. So just don't, don't let anybody know. And that was gonna be hard for me. Before John, the guy I dated then, this guy Mike, when we broke up, I emailed 100 of my closest friends with the news, just saying, this is what happened. I don't wanna talk about it, but I want you to know and just not mention it. So I'm not used to keeping secrets and not telling people my business, but this situation is different 
You're supposed to keep it quiet, so we're gonna keep it quiet. The tricky thing here is that uh, if you're pregnant, you don't want people to know, you have to hide the fact that you're not drinking. Especially in my case. At my house, standard items include a 1.75 of Jameson and multiple bottles of wine. I usually buy them four at a time, because that's not, you know, eight at a time would be a problem, right? <laughs> but I have all this alcohol. So we're going to parties, and I'm like, how are we gonna hide this secret? Fortunately, John and I shift into this mode. We're pretending that we're spies. So I'm at a party. I've got a hip flask full of vodka, very covertly in the kitchen, mixing my drink, giving John the nod, I've got this. Walk around with my pretend cocktail. One day, we're at a bar, friends order margaritas. Crap, we were not planning for this. But don't worry, we've got a plan. I look at John, we nod, we have our glasses, we switch them back and forth, and John very valiantly drinks my share of the margarita. What a guy. Sacrificing himself for the cause, we are doing everything according to plan. I just pick up the glass every now and then, lick a little salt off, put it back, give him a little glance, we got this. Fortunately, there was one place where we could be open and didn't have to hide the secret, and that was back in this ultrasound room. This was like, if we were spies, the ultrasound room was our safe house. I am in there, I'm, uh, I'm looking at the screen, and then we're looking at the tech, and we're looking at my like goo-covered belly, and then each other. And it's just this surreal experience, you know? It's not anything like on TV. We're not like, oh, look at this, but we are excited. So the ultrasound tech is measuring the little blob. You know, it's like she's circling it and trying to figure out how large it is, like she's measuring it for a super tiny little androgynous suit or something. And John and I are just like looking at each other and my belly and the screen and all this excitement back and forth. And I'm imagining our future, like it's becoming more and more real. Like you know you're pregnant, but you don't really know you're pregnant. And I'm just thinking about what it's gonna be like. John and I are pretty into Halloween and dressing up for that. Last year, we were uh, Pluto the planet, giant paper mache thing. That was John's costume. And then I was New Horizons, the space probe, wearing a gold dress and like running around him very quickly and taking photos with my cell phone. And this year, we were the characters from Grey Gardens. And like, this is a big thing for us. And so I'm imagining, like, oh, we've always had these two person costumes and now we can have a three person costume. And just imagine like, oh, that moment when you're feeding the baby new different foods and you feed the baby a pickle and watch it make that face that's like, ew, but also they keep eating it. And, and, and John has this idea that we should have like family theme nights like Taco Tuesday, which is really just an excuse because he loves tacos. But no, that's great. We'll have all these family things. And I'm just imagining our kid and oh my God, how gangly and nerdy it's gonna be because look at us. <laughs> but that's fine because it'll be ours and it's all just very exciting and seeing this little tiny blob on the screen, it's just all becoming real. And I'm looking at John and I'm looking at the tech and I'm looking at the screen and I'm looking at my belly and all of a sudden I become aware of how quiet the room is. And I start to worry. And then the tech says, excuse me, and leaves the room. And I turn to John and I say, I don't think she can find a heartbeat. And a couple minutes later, we have the news, confirmation. Doctor comes in, I was having a miscarriage. Now on some level, I wasn't that surprised, frankly. Um, I've had a lot of friends that have had miscarriages, including a couple that have had the miscarriage like, you know, eight months when you've painted the room and you've picked out names. Public, tragic, painful. So the whole time, this is going on, I'm just very aware, and I'm thinking this very much could happen. 
Plus, frankly, I'm a pretty, like, heartlessly logical person sometimes, and I kind of believe that miscarriage is the body's quality control. So I worked as a quality manager at a translation company, and so in my mind, you know, I flash back to my days working there. You have your manual, like for a laminator or some other office product, and it's translated into 18 languages, and there I am with a red pen, like circling the Swedish and saying, uh, metric conversion inconsistent, in uh, non-conforming product send back for rework. And in my body, there's a tiny little person in there. She's like looking at all the chromosomes and going, chromosomal abnormalities, destroy non-conforming products. So in a way, like that's probably what's happening, right? It's, in a way, it's a good thing, right? The body's doing its job. I should be fine with this. So, you know, in typical fashion, I had a plan. I was like, all right. We're gonna have a DNC, get everything out of me. We'll get back to trying. We will conceive again, and the miscarriage will be nothing but a footnote in a much larger story. Plan commence. But on another level, I was completely unprepared. See, I had the DNC, but a week later, I found myself, um, it was a sunny Saturday. I was volunteering for this event called the Amazing Milwaukee Race, the scavenger hunt thing. There's teams going all over town, doing all these challenges. And I'm working at this checkpoint where teams have to stack up pennies for some reason and make a tower. And that's, that's what I'm helping with. And I'm there and I'm wearing this like blue knee length skirt because none of my skinny jeans will conceal the gigantic maxi pads that I'm wearing. We're talking like, are you there God, it's me Margaret, old school, huge <laughs> saddles that I'm sitting on. And I'm wearing this because I'm bleeding kind of heavily. And it gets worse, and it gets worse. And I'm bleeding so much that I start having to run down and go to the bathroom like, you know, every 30 minutes or so. And I'm starting to freak out because this wasn't, this, they, nobody told me this would happen. But there was like, it was like vats of grape jelly dripping out from inside me. And I'm starting to panic. I mean, previously I had this like wonderful secret and now I feel like I have the most horrible secret and I wonder who can tell. And so I, I go outside and I call this nurse's line for my insurance just to say, is this supposed to be happening? Is this normal? Am I dying? Am I broken? And you know, they answer my question, is this amount of bleeding normal? Well, you know, if you're soaking through more than one pad an hour, you should probably go to the ER. And although she technically answered my question, she didn't really answer my question because I think my real question was, is this my fault somehow? Is this normal? Is this, is this what's supposed to happen? And if so, why didn't anyone tell me? I knew that going to the ER wasn't really gonna change anything, at least not the things that I wanted to change. So I went back in and I helped people make towers of pennies and I pretended that I was okay. And I wondered if anyone could smell what I felt I could smell, like the smell of death and failure. And eventually, the horrible bleeding stopped and eventually we got back to trying, but this time it was, it was just different. I know for like the first six months, like I was pretty hopeful. Actually the first three, I'm like, that's all right. Three months, we'll get back on track and it'll be all good. I'm an A student, we can do this. But after a while, it started to be that every period would start to feel like a failure. I was at the dentist office and the hygienist saw the note in my chart from um, the previous visit when I had been pregnant and had to not get x-rays. And she, I guess, didn't math it right and said, oh, how's your new little one? And so I responded to her, you know, in that voice, that voice we use 
when we ask someone for a tampon, that voice we use when we talk about mental illness or addiction. I was like, no, I miscarried, so actually we can get those x-rays today. And she responded perfectly. She was so kind. In fact, I kind of can't believe this, and I wonder if I remember correctly, but I swear she told me about her own miscarriage. Like, in this moment of compassion and like solidarity and trying to make me think it was gonna be okay. And she was absolutely lovely, but at the same time, I knew on some level, or I imagined, or I felt like inside my head, I could see her looking at my chart and looking at my age and raising her eyebrows and saying, you know, maybe you shouldn't have waited so long. Maybe somehow this was my fault. And then a couple months later, I, um, I'd been having these horrible back problems. Who knows if it was connected, stress or what. But I was in the physical therapist and she was talking to me about pain and feedback loops and how if you focus on your pain enough, you can like sense it more and feel it more and stress out about it more and make it worse and make it worse. And I burst into tears because I was convinced that I had done this to myself somehow. And I tried to explain it to her, but I couldn't, probably because I didn't even really understand it myself. I just felt really broken. Interestingly, I came across a Facebook post from a friend that did change things for me a little bit. My friend Jonathan, he announced on Facebook that he and his wife had miscarried. And the post completely shocked me. I mean, they just put it out there and they said, this happened and we're sad, but we're gonna be okay. And we're gonna take care of each other today. And, and thank you in advance for all of your compassion. And everyone like, like responded with such love. You know, I felt such empathy for them. And I started to wonder then, why didn't I feel the same sort of empathy for myself? Maybe the shame was connected to the silence. Maybe the silence was connected to my own desire to somehow control it all. And really, that's something that I need to relinquish. I mean, if I'm a parent someday, then I'm going to have this autonomous being, and I can't pretend I can control that. And on the other hand, if I never become a parent, I'm also going to have to accept that, because it's really out of my control, as much as that kills me to admit. So, here goes. Two weeks ago, I found out that I was pregnant again. On this Monday morning, I felt a weird, liquidy gurgle, and then a gush of bright red blood. And I called the doctor, and then I called John crying. They sent me for tests. My hormone levels are fine. My aching breasts say that I'm fine, but the continued amounts of blood and the cramping say otherwise. On Tuesday, I'm gonna be on that table again. It's probably too soon, like six weeks and a couple days. It'll probably be too soon to tell if there's a heartbeat, um, but maybe they'll be able to see what, if anything, is growing inside me. So I'm hoping for a couple different outcomes. Best case would be a healthy pregnancy. And I really, really, I really hope that's the case. But, um, but it could also be a miscarriage without the illusion that I can control it or that it's my fault somehow. So either way, I won't be silent. Thank you.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Wilco behind me now, and I am so happy to announce that that little bun in the oven at the end of <laughs> Megan's story there is now her daughter, Olivia. It was, I guess, about two years old at this point. Don't forget that if you email us at kevin at risk-show.com and send us proof, you know, a little screenshot or whatever, that you did pre-order the Risk book, I will sing your name at the end of the episode. So email me at kevin at risk-show.com. And if you still don't know how to pre-order the goddamn book, you just go to theriskbook.com or you can text to the number 900-900 the word risk and that'll get you started on the pre-ordering process. Here's all the places that Risk is coming next, and we're taking pitches for a lot of these shows still. On June 16th, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. On June 28th, we're back in New York at Caveat. On July 17th, we're having our big book release show at Caveat. And on July 19th, we're in Boston, Cambridge, at the Harvard Bookstore for our first book signing and book reading promo event. On uh, July 20th, we're in Boston, technically Somerville, doing a risk show, and we're still taking pitches for that one. On July 26th, we are doing a book signing in San Francisco at Book Passage. That is a book signing, book reading, you know, a separate little event, not a risk show. But on July 27th, we're in San Francisco at Swedish American Hall doing a risk show. On July 28th, we're back in L.A. On August 3rd, we are in Detroit, technically Ferndale. That is a risk show. And then on August 9th, we're at LaGrange, Illinois, at Anderson's Bookshop for one of those book signing, book reading events. On August 10th, we're in Chicago, Illinois, at Lincoln Hall doing a risk show. On August 11th, we're in Minneapolis at Brave New Workshop doing a risk show. On August 16th, we're in Washington, D.C., at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe. That is a book signing, book reading event. On August 17th, we're in Baltimore at Creative Alliance. On August 18th, we're in Washington, D.C. On September 6th, Portland, Oregon. September 7th, Seattle, Washington. September 8th, Vancouver. September 20th, NYU Bookstore. That is a book signing, book reading event. And then more coming up after that. But if you want to pitch us for any of those shows, go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. Don't forget our school. We teach storytelling one-on-one over Skype. We do group workshops. We do those sorts of workshops that you can download and watch in your own time via video. And we do lots and lots of corporate workshops for companies like Google and Pfizer and Citibank. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
people who have ordered that risk book. There's Amy Terrace and Vanessa Jefferson. And happy birthday to her friend Candice Guadarrama. There's Charlotte Coons and Ashley Harding. There's Grant Leslie and Jeff Oregon. There's Diva DeMortis and Kiri Van. Kyrie Van Allen. There's Anna, Karen and Car Karen Kayan. Tanya Kayan and Carla Reed. There's Todd Pearson and Allison Pinson. And I should say hi to her friend, Julie Robotham. There's Jonas Newbert and Peter White. There's Phoebe Kircher and Laura Ryan. There's Jonathan Ray and Callan Hunter. There's Alice Jasper. Alice Jasper. There's Cesar Arzola and Helen Goolish. There's Neil Barden and Candace Guadarrama. There's Beth Samuel and, of course, Jen Hill. There's Laura Bovilski and Dania Donya Clark. And, of course, last but not least, there's Val. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer! And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC.